Welcome to Volume 8 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 19 It was not immediately that I too departed. The hour was late, and my bed awaited me at Che Boko. But for a considerable time I remained rooted to the spot, staring dazedly into the darkness. Winged creatures of the night came bumping into the old face and bumping off again, while others used the back stretches of my neck as a skating rink. I did not even raise a hand to interfere with their revels. This awful thing that had come upon me had practically turned me into a pillar of salt. I doubt if the moth or whatever it was doing Swedish exercises in and around my left ear had the remotest notion that it had parked itself on the person of a once vivacious young clubman. A tree it probably thought or possibly even the living rock. Presently, however, life returned to the rigid limbs, and I started to plod my weary way down the drive and out the gate, eventually reaching Boko's door. It was open and I heaved myself through. There was a light along the passage, and heading for it I won through to the sitting room. Boko was in an armchair with its feet on the mantelpiece and his hand clasping a glass. The sight of another glass and a siphon decanter drew me to the table like a magnet. The sloshing of the liquid seemed to rouse mine host from a reverie, causing him for the first time to become aware of my presence. Help yourself, he said. Thank you, old man. Though I'm surprised you have the heart to drink after what has occurred tonight. He spoke coldly, and there was a distinct aloofness in his manner as he reached out and refilled his glass. He eyed me for a moment as if I had been a caterpillar in some salad of which he was about to partake, and resumed. I saw Nobby. Oh, yes. As I anticipated, she cried buckets. I'm sorry. So you should be. Yours was the hand that wrenched those pearly drops from her eyes. Oh, dash it. It's no good saying, oh, dash it. You have a conscience, I presume. Then it must have informed you that you were directly responsible for the downpour. Well, if anybody had told me that Bertie Worcester would let me down, then... You said that before! And I shall go on saying it, even unto seventy times seven. One doesn't dismiss a thing like that with a single careless comment. When your whole faith in human nature has been shattered, you're entitled to repeat yourself a bit. He laughed a short, mirthless laugh very rasping and hot on the ears. Then, as if dismissing an unpleasant subject for the time being, he drained his snootful and turned to the matter of my belated return, saying he'd expected me hours ago. When I took you for an after-dinner stroll, I didn't think you were going to stay out practically till the arrival of the morning milk. You will have to change the dissolute city ways if you wish to fit in with the life of a decent English village. I'm a bit later than I anticipated. What kept you? Well, for one thing, I was being biffed over the nut by Edwin with a hockey stick. That took time. What? Yes. He socked you with a hockey stick? Right on the bean. Oh, said Boko and seemed to brighten quite a bit. Fine little chap, that Edwin. Good stuff in that boy. Got nice ideas. The Cirques being what they were, this absence of the sympathetic note distressed me. Filling me with what I have heard Jeeves described as thoughts that lie too deep for tears. A man in my position wants his friends to rally round him. Don't 
jibe and scoff, I begged. I want sympathy, Boko. Sympathy and advice. Do you know what? What? I'm engaged to Florence. What, again? What's become of Stilton? I will tell you the whole ghastly story. I suppose the poignant note in my voice stirred his better nature, for he listened gravely and with evidences of human feelings as I related my tragedy. When I concluded, he shivered and reached out for the decanter, his whole aspect that of a man who needed a quick one. There but for the grace of God, he said in a low voice, goes George Webster Fiddleworth. I pointed out that he was missing the nub. Yes, that's all very well, Boko. I'm sure you have my heartiest congratulations. But the fact with which we have to deal is that there actually does go Bertram Worcester. Have you nothing to suggest? Is any man safe? He continued still musing. I did think that the black spot had finally passed into Stilton's possession. So did I! It's a shame it hasn't, because he really loves that girl, Bertie. No doubt you've been feeling a decent pity for Stilton, but I assure you it was wasted. He loves her. And when a man with a head as fat as that loves, it is forever. You and I would say that it was impossible that anyone should really want to marry this frightful girl, but it's a fact. Did she make you read types of ethical theory? Yes, me too. It was that that first awoke me to a sense of my peril. But when she slipped it to Stilton, he ate it alive. I don't suppose he understood a word of it, but I repeat, he ate it alive. Theirs would have been an ideal match. Too bad it's blown a fuse. Of course, if Stilton would resign from the force, a way could readily be paved to an understanding. It's that that's the root of the trouble. Once more, I saw that the nub had eluded him. It's not Stilton I'm worried about, Boko, old man. It's me. I view Stilton with a benevolent eye and would be glad to see him happily mated. But the really vital question is, where does Bertram get off? How do we extricate poor old Worcester? You really want to be extricated? My dear chap! She would be a good influence on your life. Steadying. Educative. Would you torture me, Boko? Well, how did you extricate yourself when you were engaged to her last time? It's a long story. Then, for goodness sake, don't start it now. All I meant was, could the same technique be employed in the present crisis? I'm afraid not. There was something she wanted me to do for her, and I failed to do it, and she gave me the air. These cirques could not arise again. I see. Well, it's a pity you can't use the method I did, the Fiddleworth system. Simple but efficacious. That would solve all your difficulties. Why can't I use it? Because you don't know what it is. You could tell me. He shook his head. No, Bertie, not after the extraordinary attitude you've seen fit to take up with regard to my proposals for sweetening your Uncle Percy. The Fiddleworth method, tried and tested, I may say, proved infallible, can be imparted only to the deserving. It's not a secret I would care to share with any except real friends who are as true as steel. I'm as true as steel, Boko! No, Bertie, you're not as true as steel, or anything like it. You may have shown that by your behaviour tonight. A real eye-opener it's been, causing me to revise my estimate of your friendship from the bottom up. 
Of course, if you were to reconsider your refusal to chip in on this scheme of Jeeves's and consent, after all, to play your allotted part, I should be delighted to. But what's the use of talking about it? You have declined, and that's that. I know your iron will, Bertie. When it comes to a decision, it stays come to. I didn't know so much about that. It's true, of course, that I have a will of iron, but it can be switched off if the circumstances seem to demand it. The strong man always knows when to yield and make concessions. I have frequently found myself doing so in my relationship with Jeeves. You absolutely guarantee this secret method, I asked earnestly. I can only tell you that it produced immediate and gratifying results in my own case. One moment I was engaged to Florence, and the next I wasn't. As quick as that. It was more like magic than anything I can think of. And you'll tell me if I promise to tick Uncle Percy off. I'll tell you after you ticked him off. Why not now? Just a whim. It's not that I don't trust you, Bertie. It's not that I think that having learned that Fiddleworth's secret, you would change your mind about carrying out your end of the contract. But it would be a temptation, and I don't want your pure soul to be sullied by it. But you'll tell me without fail after I've done the deed. Without fail. I pondered. It was a fearful choice to have to make, but I did not hesitate long. All right, Boko, I'll do it. He tapped me affectionately on the chest. It was odd how tonight's events had brought out the chest-tapper in him. Splendid fellow, he said. I thought you would. Now, pop off to bed so as to get a good night's rest and rise alert and refreshed. I will sit up and rough out a few things for you to say to the old boy. It's no good your trusting to the inspiration of the moment. You must have your material all written out and studied. I doubt, too, if left to yourself, you would be able to think of anything really adequate. This is one of those occasions when you need the literary touch. Chapter 20 It was but a troubled slumber that I enjoyed that night, much disturbed by dreams of Uncle Percy chasing me with his hunting crop. Waking the next morning, I found that though the heart was leaden, the weather conditions were the best and brightest. The sun shone, the sky was blue, and in the trees outside my window, the ear detected the twittering of a covey or platoon of the local fowls of the air. But though all nature smiled, there was, as I have indicated, no disposition on the part of Bertram to follow suit. I got no kick from the shining sun, no uplift from the azure firmament, as it is sometimes called, while as for the twittering birds, their heartiness in the circumstances seemed overdone and in dubious taste. When you're faced with the sort of ordeal I was faced with, there is but little satisfaction to be derived from the thought that you've got a nice day for it. My watch showed me that the hour was considerably less advanced than my customary one for springing from between the sheets, and it is possible that had the burden on the soul been lighter, I might have turned over and got another forty minutes. But the realization of what dark deeds must be done ere this day's sun should have set, or for that matter, ere this day's lunch should have been eaten, forbade sleep. I rose accordingly, and assembling sponge and towel, was about to proceed to the bathroom for a bit of torso sluicing, when my eye was caught by a piece of paper protruding from beneath the door. I picked it up and found it to be the material which Boko 
had sat up on the previous night composing for my benefit. The few things, if you remember, which he wanted me to say to Uncle Percy. As my eye flitted over it, the persp started out on my brow and I sank back onto the bed appalled. It was as if I had scooped in a snake. I think that in an earlier chronicle I related how, when a growing boy at my private school, I had once sneaked down at the dead of night to the study of the headmaster, the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn, in order to pinch a few mixed biscuits from the store which I had been informed that he maintained in the cupboard there, and how having got well ahead with the work in hand I discovered that their proprietor was also among those present, seated at the desk regarding my activities with a frosty eye. The reason I bring this up again is that on the occasion to which I allude, after a brief pause on my side of the embarrassment, on his of working up steam, the Reverend Aubrey had started to give a sort of character sketch of the young Worcester, which until now I had always looked upon as the last word in scholarly invective. It was the kind of thing a minor prophet of the Old Testament might have thrown together on one of his bilious mornings. And as I say, I considered it to have set a watermark at which other orators would shoot in vain. I had been wrong. This screed of Boko's left it nowhere. Boko began where the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn left off. Typewritten with single spaces, I suppose the stuff ran to about 600 words. And of all those 600 words, I don't think there were more than a half a dozen which I could have brought myself to say to a man of Uncle Percy's calibre unless primed to the back teeth with raw spirit. And Bilko, you will recall, was expecting me to deliver my harangue at ten o'clock in the morning. To shoot out of my room into his, bubbling over with expostulations and what not, was with me the work of an instant. But the elegant outburst which I had been planning was rendered null and void by the fact that he was not there. And an inquiry of an aged female, who I found messing about in the kitchen, elicited the information that he had gone for a swim in the river. Repairing thither, I perceived him splashing about in midstream with many a merry cry. But once more I was obliged to choke back the burning words. A second glance revealed a pink, porpoise-like object at his side, told me that he was accompanied by Stilton. It was to Steeple Bumpley's zealous police constable that the merry cries were addressed and I deemed it wisest to leave my presence unrevealed. It seemed to me that a chat with Stilton at this particular juncture could be fraught with neither pleasure nor profit. I pushed along the bank, therefore, pondering deeply, and I hadn't gone far when there came to my ears the swish of a fishing line. And there was Jeeves, harrying the finny denizens like nobody's business. I might have known that his first act on finding himself established in Steeple Bumpley would have been to head for the fluid and cast a fly or two. As it was to this fly-caster that I owed my present hideous predicament, you will not be surprised to learn that my manner, as I came abreast, was on the distant side. Ah, Jeeves, I said. Good morning, sir. He responded. A lovely day. Lovely for some of us, perhaps, Jeeves, I said coldly but not for the last of the Worcesters, who, thanks to you, is faced by a binge beside which all former binges fade into insignificance. Sir? It's no good saying sir. You know perfectly well what I mean. Entirely through your instrumentality, I shall shortly be telling Uncle Percy things about himself 
which will do something to his knotted and combined locks, which at the moment has slipped my memory. Make his knotted and combined locks to part in each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porpentine, sir. Porpentine? Yes, sir. That can't be right. There isn't such a thing. However, let it pass. The point is you have let me in for the ghastly task of ticking Uncle Percy off, and I want to know what you did it for. Was it kind, Jeeves? Was it feudal? He registered surprise. Mild surprise, of course. He never goes as far as the other sort. One eyebrow flickered a little and the tip of the nose moved slightly. You are alluding to the suggestion I offered Mr. Fittleworth, sir. That is the suggestion I am alluding to, Jeeves. But surely, sir, if you have decided to fall in with the scheme, it was entirely your kind heart that led you to do so. It would have been optional for you to have declined to lend your assistance. Ha! Sir? I said ha, Jeeves, and I meant ha. Do you know what happened last night? So much happened last night, sir. True. Among other things, I got properly biffed over the coconut by young Edwin with his scout stick. He thought I was a burglar. Indeed, sir. We then fell into conversation, and he informed me that he'd found the brooch, which we assumed to have perished in the flames, and had delivered it to Lady Florence, telling her it was a birthday present from me. Indeed, sir. It just turned the scale. She'd had a frightful row with Stilton, gave him the air for saying derogatory things about modern enlightened thought, and is now betrothed once more to the toad beneath the harrow, whom you see before you. I thought he was going to say indeed, sir, again, in which case I might easily have forgotten all the decent scenes of civilized life and dotted him one. At the last moment, however, he checked the utterance and merely pursed his lips in a grave and sympathetic manner. A vast improvement. And the reason I consented to sit in on this scheme of yours was that Bogo confided to me last night that he had a simple, infallible remedy for getting out of being engaged to the specific girl. And he won't tell me what it is till I've interviewed Uncle Percy. I see, sir. I must learn it at all costs. It's no use my trying the Stilton method and saying nasty things about modern enlightened thought because I couldn't think of any. It's either the Bogo way or nothing. You don't happen to know what it is that made Florence sever her relations with him, do you? No, sir. Indeed, it is news to me that Mr. Fittleworth was affianced to her ladyship. Oh, yes, he was affianced to her, all right. Post-Worcester, but pre-Stilton. And something occurred. An imbroglio of some description took place, and the thing was instantly broken off. Just like magic, he said. I gathered that it was something he did, but what could it have been? I fear I am unable to hazard a conjecture, sir. Would you wish me to institute inquiries among the domestic staff at the hall? Excellent idea, Jeeves. It is possible that some member of that unit may have become cognizant of the facts. The thing was probably the talk of the housekeeper's room for days. Sound the butler. Question the cook. Very good, sir. Or try Lady Florence's personal maid. Somebody's sure to know. There's not much the domestic staffs don't become cognizant of. No, sir. 
one has usually found them quite well informed. And bear in mind that speed is essential. If you can hand me the data before I see Uncle Percy, that is to say, any time up to ten o'clock, for which hour the kickoff is slated, I shall be in position to edge out of giving him the straight talk, at the thought of which I don't mind telling you my flesh creeps. As for the happiness of Boko and Soulmate, I am all for giving them that boost, of course, but I feel that it can be done by other, less drastic methods. So lose no time, Jeeves, in instituting those inquiries. Very good, sir. Be at the main gate of the hall from half-past nine onwards. I shall be arriving about then, and shall expect your report. Try not to fail me, Jeeves. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. If I could show you that list Boko drafted out of things he wants me to say, I unfortunately left it in my room where it fell from my nerveless fingers. Your knotted and combined locks would part all right, believe me. You're sure it's porpentine? Yes, sir. Very odd, but I suppose half the time Shakespeare just shoved down anything that came into his head. Having been en route for the bathroom at the moment when I buzzed off to seek audience of Boko, I was still, of course, in the ordinary slumber wear of the English gentleman, plus a dressing gown, and it was some little time, accordingly, after I had returned to the house, before I showed up at the dining salon. I found Boko there getting outside a breakfast egg. I asked him if he knew what a porpentine was, and he said to hell with all porpentines, and had I got the sheet of instructions all right, and if so, what did I think of it? To this, my reply was that I certainly had jolly well got it, and that it had frozen me to the marrow. No human power, I added, would induce me to pass on to Uncle Percy even a skeleton outline of the document's frightful contents. Frightful contents? That's what I said. He seemed wounded and murmured something about the artist and destructive criticism. I thought it was particularly good stuff. Crisp, terse and telling. The subject inspired me, and I was under the impression I had given of my best. Still, if you feel that I stress the personal note a bit too much, you can modify it here and there if you like, preserving the substance, of course. As a matter of fact, I said, thinking it best to prepare him, you mustn't be surprised, Boko, if at the last moment I change my plans and decide to give the whole thing a miss. What? I'm toying with the idea. Well... I'm blowed. Is this... Yes, it is. You don't know what I was going to say. Yes, I do. You were going to say, Is this Bertie Worcester speaking? Quite right, I was. Well, is it? Yes. His table talk then took a rather acid tone, touching disparagingly on so-called friends who, supposed by him hitherto to be staunch and true, turned out to his disappointment to be lily-livered poltroons lacking even the meagre courage of a rabbit. Where are the boys of bulldog breed? That's what I want to know. He concluded, plainly chagrined. Well, you understand clearly what this means. Fail me, and not an inkling of the Fiddleworth secret do you get. I smiled subtly and helped myself to a slice of ham. He little knew I felt. I shall watch you walking up the aisle with Florence Cray, and not stir a finger to save you. In fact, you will hear a voice singing, O oh, perfect love, rather louder than the rest of the congregation, and it shall be mine. 
Reconsider, Bertie. That is what I advise. Well, of course, I said. I didn't say I would back out of the assignment. I only said I may. This calmed him somewhat, and he softened, saying that he was sure that when the hour struck, my better self would prevail. And a bit later, we parted with mutual good wishes, for it had been arranged that we should proceed to the hall separately. In his case, Boko felt not without some reason that there was need for stealth, lest he be fallen upon and slung out. He proposed, therefore, to circle round the outskirts till he found a gap in the hedge, and then approached the study by a circuitous route, keeping well in the shelter of the bushes and not letting a twig snap beneath his feet. I set out myself accordingly and arrived at the main entrance to find Jeeves waiting for me in the drive. I needed but a glance to inform me that the man had good tidings. I could always tell. He doesn't exactly smile on these occasions, because he never does. But the lips twitched slightly at the corners and the eye is benevolent. I gave tongue eagerly. Well, Jeeves? I have the data you require, sir. Splendid fellow. You saw the butler? You probed the cook? Actually, it was from the boy who cleans the knives and boots that I secured the information, sir. A young fellow by the name of Herbert. How did he come to be our special correspondent? It appears that he was actually an eyewitness of the scene, sir. Sheltered by the obscurity of a neighbouring bush, where he had been enjoying a surreptitious cigarette. From this point of vantage, he was enabled to view the entire proceedings. And what were they? Tell me, Jeeves. Omit no detail, however slight. Well, sir, the first thing that attracted the lad's attention was the approach of Master Edwin. He comes into it, does he? Yes, sir. His role, as you will see, is an important one. Master Edwin, Albert reports, was advancing through the undergrowth, his gaze fixed upon the ground. He seemed to be tracking something. Sporing, no doubt. It's a practice to which these scouts are much addicted. So I understand, sir. His movements, Albert noted, were being observed with a sisterly indulgence by Lady Florence, who was cutting flowers in an adjacent border. She was watching him, eh? Yes, sir. Simultaneously, Mr. Fiddleworth appeared, following the young gentleman. Sporing the sporer! Yes, sir. Herbert describes his manner as keen and purposeful. That, at least, was his meaning, though the actual phrasing of his statement was different. These knives and boot boys seldom express themselves well. Yes, I've often noticed that. Rotten vocabularies. Go on, Jeeves, I'm all agog. Boko, you say, was trailing Edwin? Why? That was what Herbert appears to have asked himself, sir. He was mystified? Yes, sir. I don't blame him. I'm mystified myself. I gather, of course, that the plot thickens, but I'm dashed if I can see where it's headed. It was not long before Mr. Fiddleworth's motives were abundantly clear, sir. As Master Edwin approached the flower bed, he suddenly accelerated his movements. Edwin did? No, sir, Mr. Fiddleworth. He bounded forward at the young gentleman, and taking advantage of the fact that the latter, in the course of his sporing, had just adopted a stooping posture, proceeded to deliver a forceful kick upon his person. Golly, Jeeves! Causing him to fly through the air and fall at Lady Florence's feet. Her ladyship, horrified and incensed, 
rebuked Mr. Fiddleworth sharply, demanding an immediate explanation of this wanton assault. The latter endeavoured to justify his actions by accusing Master Edwin of having tampered with his patent egg boiler, so disorganising the mechanism that a new-laid egg had flown from its base and struck him on the tip of the nose. Her ladyship, however, was unable to see her way to accepting this as a palliation of what had occurred, and shortly afterwards announced that the betrothal was at an end. I'd drawn the breath. The scales had fallen from my eyes. I saw it all. So that was the Fiddleworth remedy, booting young Edwin. No wonder Burgo had spoken of it as simple and efficacious. All you needed was a good stout shoe and a sister's love. I heard Jeeves cough. If you will glance to your left, sir, he said, you will observe that Master Edwin has just entered the drive and is stooping over some object on the ground that appears to have engaged his attention. Chapter 21 I got the gist. The significance of his words were not lost upon me. The grave, encouraging look with which he had accompanied the news bulletin would alone have been enough to enable me to sense the underlying message he was trying to convey. It was the sort of look a Roman father might have given his son when handing him a shield and spear and pushing him off to battle, and it ought, I suppose, to have stirred me like a bugle. Nonetheless, I found myself hesitating. After that sock on the head he'd given me on the previous night, the thought of kicking young Edwin was one that presented many attractions, and there was no question but that the child had been asking for some such little personal attention for years. But there's something rather embarrassing about doing that sort of thing in cold blood. Difficult, I felt, to lead up to it neatly in the course of conversation. Hello, Edwin. How are you? Lovely day. Biff. See what I mean? Not easy. In Burgo's case, of course, the whole setup had been entirely different, for he'd been in the grip of the berserk fury that comes upon a man when he's hit on the tip of the nose with a new laid egg. This had enabled him, so to speak, to get a running start. Yes, I said. Yes, there he is, Jeeves. And as you say, stooping, but you really advise? I do, sir. What now? Yes, sir. There is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. Oh, rather. Quite. No argument about that, but... If what you are trying to say, sir, is that it is of the essence that Lady Florence be present to observe the proceedings as she did in the case of Mr. Fiddleworth, I fully concur. I would suggest that I go and inform her ladyship that you are waiting on the drive and would be glad of a word with her. I still hesitated. It was one of those cases where you approve the broad general principle of an idea but can't help being in a bit of a twitter at the prospect of putting it into practical effect. I explained this to Jeeves, and he said that much the same thing had bothered Hamlet. Your irresolution is quite understandable, sir. Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or a hideous dream. The genius and the mortal instruments are then in council, and that state of man like to a little kingdom, suffers then the nature of the insurrection. 
Absolutely, I said. He puts these things well. If it would assist you to stiffen the sinews and summon up the blood, sir, may I remind you that it is very nearly ten o'clock, and that only the promptest action along the lines I have indicated can enable you to avoid appearing in his lordship's study at that hour. He had found the talking point. I hesitated no longer. You're right, Jeeves. How long do you think it will be necessary to detain young Edwin in a conversation before you can bring Lady Florence on stage? Not more than a few minutes, sir. I happen to know her ladyship is at the moment in her private apartment, engaged upon literary work. There will be but a brief interval before she appears. Then tally-ho! Very good, sir. He flickered off upon his mission, while I, having summoned up the blood a bit and stiffened the sinews as far as was possible at such short notice, squared the shoulders and headed for where Edwin was squatting. The weather continued uniformly fine. The sun shone and a blackbird, I remember, was sinking in an adjoining thicket. No reason why it shouldn't have been, of course. I mention the fact merely to stress the general peace and tranquility of everything, and I must say that it did strike me as a passing thought that the sort of setting a job like this really needed was a blasted heath at midnight, with a cold wind whistling in the bushes, and three witches doing their stuff at the cauldron. However, one can't have everything, and I doubt if an observer would have noted any diffidence in Bertram's bearing as he advanced upon his prey. Bertram, I rather fancy, he would have thought, was in pretty good form. I hove to at the stripling's side. Hello, young Edwin, I said. His gaze had been riveted on the ground, but at the sound of the familiar voice a couple of pink-rimmed eyes came swiveling round in my direction. He looked up at me like a ferret, about to pass the time of day with another ferret. Hello, Bertie. I say, Bertie, I did another act of kindness this morning. Oh, yes? I finished pasting the notices of Florence's novel in her album. That puts me all right up to last Wednesday. Good work. You're catching up. And what do you think you're doing now? I'm studying ants. Do you know anything about ants, Bertie? Only from meeting them at picnics. I've been reading up about them. They're very interesting. Vastly, I shouldn't wonder. I was glad the topic had been introduced, for it promised to be one that would carry us along nicely until Florence's arrival on the scene. It was obvious the young squirt was bulging with information about these industrious little creatures, and asked nothing better than to be allowed to impart it. Did you know ants can talk? Talk? In a sort of way, to other ants, of course. They do it by tapping their heads on a leaf. How's your head this morning, Bertie? I nearly forgot to ask. Still on the tender side. I thought it would be. Coo! That was funny last night, wasn't it? I laughed for hours when I got to bed. He emitted a ringing guffaw, and at the raucous sound, any spark of compunction that might have been lingering in my bosom was quenched. A boy to whom the raising of a lump the size of a golf ball on the Worcester Bean was a subject for heartless mirth deserved all that the boot toe could do to him. For the first time I found myself contemplating the task before me with real fire and enthusiasm. Almost, as you might say, in a missionary spirit. I mean, I felt what a world of good a swift kick in the pants would do to this child. It might prove to be the turning point in his life. You laughed, did you? Rather. Ha! I said, and ground a few teeth. 
The maddening thing was, of course, that though I was now keyed up to give up my best, and though the position he had assumed for this ant-studying session of his was the exact position demanded by the run of the scenario, I was debarred from getting action. You might have compared me to a greyhound on the leash. Until Florence came along, I could not fulfil myself. As Jeeves had said, her presence was of the essence. I scanned the horizon for a sight of her, like a shipwrecked mariner hoping for a sail, but she did not appear, and in the meantime we went on talking about ants, Edwin saying that they were members of the Hymenoptera family, and self-replying, well, well, quite the nibs, eh? They're characterized by unusual distinctness of three regions of the body, head, thorax, and abdomen, and by the stack or petiole of the abdomen having one or two scales or nodes, so the abdomen moves freely on the truck or thorax. You wouldn't fool me. The female, after laying her eggs, feeds the larva with food regurgitated from her stomach. Try to keep it clean, lad. Both males and females are winged. And why not? But the female pulls off its wings and runs about without them. I question that. I doubt if even an ant would be such an ass. It's quite true. It says so in the book. Have you ever seen ants fight? Not that I remember. They rise up on their hind legs and curve the abdomen. And to my consternation and chagrin, whether because it was his intention to illustrate, or because he found his squatting position cramping to the limbs, this is just what he did himself. He rose to his hind legs and stood facing me, curving the abdomen. At the exact moment when I perceived Florence emerging from the house and walking briskly in our direction. It was a crisis at which a less resourceful man might have supposed that all was lost. But the Worcesters are quick thinkers. Hello, I said. What's the matter? Have you dropped a sixpence? No. Somebody has. Look. Where? Under that bush, I said, and pointed to a shrub of sorts on the edge of the drive. As you probably conjecture, in saying this, I was descending to subterfuge, and anybody knowing Bertram Worcester and his rigid principles might have supposed that such willful tampering with the truth would have caused the blush of shame to mantle his cheeks. Not so, however. If there was a flush to be noted, it was the flush of excitement and triumph, for my subtle appeal to the young blister's cupidity had not failed to achieve its end. Already he was down on all fours, and if I had posed him with my own hands, I could not have attained better results. His bulging short seemed to smile up at me in a sort of inviting, welcoming way. As Jeeves had rightly said, there is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. I drew back the leg and let him have it just where the pants were tightest. It was a superb effort, considering I hadn't kicked anybody since my distant days of school you might have thought that the machinery would have gotten rusty. But no! All the old skills still lingered. My timing was perfect, and so was my follow-through. He disappeared into the bush, travelling as if out of a gun, and as he did so, Florence's voice spoke. Ha! she said. There was no mistaking the emotion that animated the ejaculation. It was stiff with it. But with a dazed sensation of something having gone wrong, I realized that it was not the emotion I had anticipated. Horror was completely absent, nor had there come through anything in the nature of indignation and sisterly resentment. Astounding as it may seem, 
Joy was the predominating note. One might go further and stay ecstasy. Her awe, in short, had been practically the equivalent of whoopee, and I could make nothing of it. Oh, thank you, Bertie, she said. It was just what I was going to do myself. Edwin, come here. Down in the forest something stirred. It was the prudent child wriggling his way through the bush in a diametrically opposite direction. There came the sound of a faint and distant coo, and he was gone, leaving not a rack behind him. Florence was gazing at me, a cordial and congratulatory light in her eyes. A happy smile played about her lips. Oh, thank you, Bertie, she said again, once more with the wealth of emotion in her voice. I would like to skin him. I have just been looking for my album of press clippings, and he has gone and pasted in half the reviews of Spindrift wrong side up. I believe he did it on purpose. It's a pity I didn't catch him, but there it is. I can't tell you how grateful I am, Bertie, for what you did. What on earth gave you the idea? Oh, it just came to me. I understand a sort of sudden inspiration. The central theme of Spindrift came like that. Jeeves said you want to speak to me. Is it something important? Oh no, not important. Then it will keep till later. I must go now and see if there isn't some way of floating those clippings off with hot water. She hurried away, turning as she entered the house to wave a loving hand, and I was left alone to submit the situation to the analysis it demanded. I don't know anything that seems to jar the back teeth like having a sure thing come unstuck, and it was with a dull sensation of having been hit in the stomach by a medicine ball, as once happened to me during a voyage to America, that I stood contemplating the future. Not even the fact that in the recent scene this girl had shown a warm human side to her nature, which I had not suspected that she possessed, could reconcile me to what I was now so unavoidably in for. A Florence capable of wanting to skin Edwin was better, of course, than a Florence susceptible of no such emotion. But no, I couldn't bring myself to like the shape of things to come. How long I stood brooding there before I became aware of the squeaking that was going on at my side, I cannot say. Quite a time it must have been, for when at length I came out of my reverie to find Nobby was endeavouring to attract my attention, I saw that her manner was impatient, like that of one trying to hobnob with a deaf-mute, and finding the one-sided conversation weighing upon the spirits. Bertie? Oh, sorry, I was musing. Well, stop musing. You'll be late. Late? For Uncle Percy in the study. I have mentioned earlier in this narrative that I am a pretty good silver lining spotter, and if there is a bright side to any cataclysm or disaster, I seldom fail to put my finger on it sooner or later. Her words reminded me that there was one attached to the present catastrophe. Murky the future might be, what with all those wedding bells, and what not, which now seemed so inescapable. But at least I was in a position to save something out of the wreck. I could at any rate give Uncle Percy the go-by. Oh, that, I said. That's off. Off? My reward for sitting in on the scheme, I explained, was to have been the learning of the Fiddleworth's secret process for getting out of being engaged to Florence. I have learned it, and it is a washout. I therefore hand in my portfolio. You mean you won't help us? In some other way to be decided later, certainly, but not by inflaming Uncle Percy. 
Oh, Bertie! It's no good saying, oh, Bertie! She looked at me with bulging eyes, and it seemed for an instant as if those pearly drops of which Boko had spoken so eloquently were about to start functioning once more. But there was good stuff in the hopwoods. The dam did not burst. But I don't understand. I explained in some detail what had occurred. Boko, I concluded, claimed that this secret remedy of his was infallible. It is not. So unless he has something else to suggest... But he has. I mean, I have. You? You want Florence to break off the engagement, right? I do. Well, go and talk to Uncle Percy, and I'll show her the letter you wrote me saying what you thought of her. That'll work it. I started. In fact, I leapt afoot. Golly! Don't you agree? Well, I'm dashed. I don't know when I've been so affected. I'd forgotten all about that letter. But now, as its burning phrases came back to me, hope, which I had thought dead, threw off the winding sheet and resumed the business of the old stand. The Fiddleworth method might have failed, but there was no question that the Hopwood remedy would bring home the bacon. Nobby, you'll promise you'll show Florence that letter. Faithfully, if you will give Uncle Percy the treatment. Is Boko at his post? He should surely be by now. Then out of my way. Here we go! And, moving as on wings, I flitted to the house, plunged across the threshold, shot down the passage that led to the relative's sanctum, and dived in!